book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, please look for someone who will share their Bible with you. You want to follow Isaiah today. It's going to be a great study. Isaiah chapter 2, actually chapter 4. We're going to be looking at segments of 2, 3, and 4 this morning. If you're new to the church, this segment of our service is what we call our preaching service. And really, it's the hub of everything we do. Uh, The worship of God revolves around the preaching of his word as we elevate and exalt Jesus Christ as our Savior and our King. And uh, we preach through the Bible, so we believe that the Bible is all of the Word of God, and we believe as God's Word, it gives us instruction for daily living and helps us in our time of need. And so when you come to church, you want to pray and ask God to prepare your heart because whatever trial or difficulty you're going through or maybe a time of success, God has a word for us he wants us to see. And I think there's many, many choice things today we're going to see in Isaiah 2, 3, and 4 that will be helpful to you. Now, if those of you who have a daily Bible reading schedule, you probably have read through Isaiah. And uh, you probably have struggled through some of it because much of the book of Isaiah is a book of prophecy. It talks about the future. How many, how many want to know about the future, amen? You want to know about the future? All the single people want to know who they're going to marry. Come see me. I'll tell you about that, amen? I'll fix that for you, okay? Uh, you want to know about the future. You want, to know, you want to know what's going to happen in the future. And praise the Lord, if you're saved, you, the Bible tells you all about the future there, amen? And, it's, and the future's good. It's not bad. It's good. But you need to know what's going on here. And so we're going to preach through this. I do encourage you, don't miss the services, because we're going to be preaching through the book of Isaiah. You're going to find I'm going to probably get maybe 10 chapters in this, and I may go back and cover verses of Scripture that I think will be helpful to you, but I want you to have a very good understanding of Isaiah. This is just one of the things for about two years the Lord put on my heart for this year to preach through this book on Sunday mornings to help our church. And then tonight, we, we, we are, we're in our second part of our series on through the book of Revelation. Again, we're talking about the future, and uh, you know, Revelation about the things that are the things that will be. We're going to look at some things that are. And we're going to look at a very tender love story tonight from the book of Revelation. And it's a love story that will touch your heart. And it's, I think it's something that we all need as, as, as God's people. And I want you back here tonight at 515 for a great evening service. So you be here for that and take some good notes. And if you have questions, you can go ahead and, and email us at the church. And we'll be glad to answer your question, try to work through that there. And that will be a good thing. Now, if you email me, Pastor, who am I supposed to marry? I'm not sure I really can tell you that. But... I'll help you with that along the way, okay? And so, and don't send me something, well, I'm not sure I want to stay married. Don't send me that. I don't want to know that, okay? We'll help you through that dynamic there too, but just please don't send something like that. How many are in Isaiah chapter 4? Let's read all six verses this morning. Listen very carefully as I read the scriptures. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man saying, we will eat our own bread, and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day, And the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat. And for a place of refuge and for a cover from storm and from rain. In verse 5, which I alluded to this morning as we had our song service. I want you to notice that God talks about a cloud by day and a fire by night. And that's the title of our message this morning as we kind of work through God's Word and do a Bible study today. We want to just get to that place of understanding the uniqueness and the awesomeness of the presence of God in our life, which is represented in the Old Testament as a cloud by day and a fire by night. And I pray this morning as we've prayed over this passage many, many times this week, that God will meet with us and help us to recognize the awesomeness and the nearness of His presence in your life and mine. Father, thank you for this holy congregation 
of saved individuals, many that are saved and baptized, several here this morning who are going about getting prepared to take that next step of following the Lord in scriptural baptism so that they can become members of this church and serve the Lord here at this church. We thank you, God, today for friends that you've given us over these last several weeks and new friends that are here. And we pray today that you'd work in our hearts. It's cold on the outside, but God, on the inside of this church building and on the inside of our hearts, we pray that you warm our lives and touch us with the warmth of your love and the warmth of your mercies. Today, God, as we start this service, I pray for the mercies of God, which are new every morning, to visit us. I pray for the mercies of understanding and the mercies of wisdom. And I pray this morning, God, for the mercies of God's grace to bound and work in hearts. Help those who are struggling today with some trial or difficulty in their life. I think of some who are just coming out of uh, a trial of the passing of a loved one and several of our families today who need mercies because of a loved one who is going through a very severe health trial. We need, we need healing mercies. And God, we need, we, need, we need comforting mercies today. And Lord, <coughs> we need salvation mercies this morning for some who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, yet they're, they're, their hearts are open and they're listening. And we pray today that with a hearing ear and an open heart, that maybe today might be the day that some would be born again into the family of God. Would Lord, would you take the coal of fire from off the altar of God and please purge my tongue and purge my life of sin and iniquity. And would you help me this morning to be an instrument, a vessel into honor that is sanctified and meet and prepared and ready ready for the master's use. Help this morning as I preach that you give understanding. I pray for our translators today as they have a very, very daunting task of translating the message, Lord, in Spanish and Chinese. Give them wisdom and the words to say. Help me to speak slow enough that they can catch it. And the Lord, to give proper translation of the word of God today. And we pray that you do a mighty work in our hearts. When we leave today, we can say that the presence of God is before us, that he's a cloud by day and a fire by night. Thank you for what you'll do in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people say amen you may be seated our series in Isaiah our theme is taken from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 10 Isaiah 40 verse 10 the theme is behold your God and as we work our way through through the book of Isaiah that is that's the essence of our as we approach the service is to say behold your God we want you to behold God in his attributes behold God in his holiness behold God in his nearness and his power for your life and mine just by way of review I said a few things last week which I'll review again this morning about the book of Isaiah Isaiah is one of the four major prophetical books of the, of the Old Testament now, we have the major prophets and we have the minor prophets. The major prophets are Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. They're called major prophets because of the length of the books, uh, the length of their books. And then we have the books, the 12, that are called the minor prophets, starting with Hosea and ending with Malachi or sometimes pronounced Malachi, okay? And um, so we have those, those, those prophets there. These prophets help us to look into the future. These prophets help us to see some historical things that have been fulfilled already. And so these are, this is an exciting book. It can be a little bit of a confusing book because if you're not very careful, you can have the wrong interpretation as you read through Isaiah and misunderstand things. It is important for you to understand that there are many commentaries that are out there on the book of Isaiah. Not all of them are reliable. Many of them are written by reformists. Many of them are written by people from who didn't have a grasp of prophecy. And their context in which they interpret it is from a historical, not a future. And so, so you have to be very careful. Otherwise, your whole concept of, of, of the of prophecy will be all skewed and unbiblical there. So that's why I encourage you, be here in these services, get a, get a pencil out, and take the note paper, take good notes there because you want to have good understanding about prophecy. Now, Isaiah's prophecy, most of what we'll see here is about the future. Notice in chapter 4, Several times he says, in that day, and uh, he mentions that frequently here. And then if you go back to chapter 2, where I'll be starting today, he talks about the day of the Lord. And uh, we're going to define all those terms for you, but as you come to this series, we're going to be defining terms for you that are very important to understand, so that as you read through the rest of the Bible, you can say, yeah, we covered that. I know what the day of the Lord means, and I know what it talks about, uh, about the day of the Lord, or the day of Christ, or the day of God, things of that nature there, okay? Now, when we read through Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies to us about the birth, the death, 
and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, that's important for us to note there. And we saw some of that during Christmas time, and we may allude to it a little bit more as we get to chapter 7 and chapter 9 here. He prophesies about Jesus Christ's second coming. He prophesies much about Israel. He prophesies much about something that's very rarely preached in most churches, and that is known as the millennium or the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Now, the reason why you want to be here is because I'm going to give you chronology. I'm going to tell you time events. I'm going to let you know how these things will transpire. You want to know that so you don't have to be overwhelmed or intimidated in reading God's Word, and your hearts can be warmed every time you have your devotions and read the Word of God. So this morning, we're looking at this passage of Scripture, at chapters 2, 3, and 4, which are continuation of chapter 1. As I said before, Isaiah's name means Jehovah is salvation. Now, go with me to chapter 2, because that's going to be our starting point today. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, would you notice the starting point? Isaiah says this, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to tell you some things that you're not there, but I'll give you some time frames, okay? Isaiah prophesied his ministry was during the reign of four different kings. We find that in chapter 1, verse 1. His reign, his prophecy, his ministry was during the reign of four different kings. Now, I'll probably preach about those kings a little bit, even though I did two years ago in a series we did on Wednesday nights. I'll probably preach again, probably new messages, just to give you some background. But his ministry began at the tail end of King Uzziah's ministry. Now, for the most part, King Uzziah was a good king of Judah, but he messed up at the end, and we'll see some of that in today's message. He messed up at the end there, and there's some things he allowed to happen to the kingdom, which, which Isaiah talks about. So Isaiah ministered during the reign of King Uzziah. He ministered during the reign of King Jotham. King Jotham had a very short reign. He was the son of Uzziah. He was a good king for the most part there, but passive in some areas, and he allowed certain things to happen that led to sinful, uh, sinful indulgences in the nation of Judah. He prophesied during the reign of King, of King Ahaz. King Ahaz, we'll see him mentioned in chapter 7, in chapter 8, in chapter 9. King Ahaz was not a very good king. In fact, a lot of bad things that happened in the kingdom, we could trace back to King Ahaz. In fact, because of King Ahaz's sin, that there were, there were many that were in the nation of Judah that were taken as captives by their own people, the Israelites. And God had to send a prophet to intervene on that. King Ahaz was not a good king. God tried to get this man straightened out, but he did not listen to God. And then we see where he prophesied during the reign of King Hezekiah, who for the most part was a very good king. And we'll see some things. In fact, three chapters in Isaiah are dedicated to the, the, uh, the ministry or the rulership of King Hezekiah. And uh, we find that Isaiah would minister there. And then as we'll, we'll read, I'll talk about this towards the tail end, Isaiah was still alive as Manasseh came to the throne. Now Manasseh was the son of King Hezekiah. We believe that Manasseh, when he was a very wicked king during a time that was very bad, that he, he despised the prophecy of Isaiah. And the likelihood, according to historians, is that he took uh, uh, Isaiah and he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he killed Isaiah. And the Bible talks about in Hebrews chapter 11, I think verse 35, verse 38, of some of the men of faith that were sawn asunder. We believe that he's specifically talking about the prophet Isaiah, that he died a martyr's death. He was, he was literally uh, sawn in half by, by, King, by King Manasseh. But be that as it may, we're seeing right now in chapter 2, verse 1, that the time of the writing of chapters 2, 3, and 4 are somewhere around the time of King Uzziah's reign and King Jotham's reign there. King Uzziah's reign and King Jotham's. I want you to have that just from a historical perspective. You can understand that. Last week, we spent some time with Isaiah just dropping the bomb on, on, on the people as he's writing to them about the sins of Judah. He's dealing with the sins of Judah specifically, not so much in Israel as he was with Judah. And he's dealing with their sins, and it got pretty, pretty, pretty interesting there, as you remember there. And we saw in chapter 1, verse 18, that only God can cleanse us from all of our sin. This morning, as we get to chapters 2, 3, and 4, he goes beneath the surface a little bit more. He's continuing the same train of thought, but he kind of points his finger at the main sin, the main sin that is the root of all sins. The main sin that is the root of all sins. It is a sin that I have. It is a sin that you have. It is a sin that every good person has. It is the root sin as to why God spent most of chapter 2 and most of chapter 3 addressing the issues that were plaguing the nation of Judah. And this morning, if we will give an open heart and ear to God, God's going to put his finger on the matter to help you and I understand 
why we have the struggles we have and why we have the difficulties we have and why God sends chastening into our lives and why God has to get our attention in different ways. And it doesn't matter if you're in the ministry. It doesn't matter that if you've been saved for over 20 years. It doesn't matter if you just got saved, you're thinking about getting saved. This sin we're going to see this morning is the root problem of every Christian. It's the root reason why unsaved people are hesitant or let's say even in some cases belligerent by not wanting to get saved. And if you'll listen this morning and let God speak to your heart, it can change your life today. Because if you'll listen very carefully, it will change your life. It will change your spirituality. It will change your marriage. It will change how you look at your parents. It will change how you look at your children. It will change everything in your life. If you'll look at this and see from God's islands what God has to say for us in this matter here today. So I want you to go with me as we start this. And notice, first of all, we're beginning in chapter 2. I want us to see a sacred hour. A sacred hour. I want us to begin here. You'll notice... In verses 2, 3, and 4 for time. In verses 2, 3, and 4, Isaiah is giving us a glimpse, a look into the future. And the glimpse and look into the future he's taking us is into this time frame known as the day of the Lord. And specifically, he's talking about the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Now, you want to mark that somewhere so you remember that next time you read this. So notice what he says here in verse 2. And it shall come to pass in the, de- in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. Now, I want you to realize that's not going to happen down right now. And that's not going to happen during our generation. That's going to happen in a future time. This is going to happen way many years later, and we'll see when that's going to happen. It's not going to happen now. She's giving us a glimpse of what the future will be like. And he says, and many people shall go, and they will say, come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge among the nations, and he shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, and would you listen to this, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, he's talking about a time frame in in, his, in the future called the day of the Lord. Would you say that with me this morning? The day of the Lord. Say that again with me this morning. The day of the Lord. Now that's important. It's not the Lord's day he's talking about. Today is the Lord's day. How many understand what I mean by the Lord's day? Say amen. The Lord's day, we call the Lord's day, is the day that Jesus rose again from the dead. The, the Lord's day is the first day of the week. It's the day of the week in which we worship the Lord. Thank you this morning for being here on the Lord's Day and with me in spirit to come to worship God because this is the Lord's Day. It's set apart from Him. It is not the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was the seventh day of the week. The Sabbath day necessity ended at the end of the law, Romans 10, 4. It ended with that. There's no need to to set aside a day of rest according to that, okay? But we have the Lord's Day, and the Lord's Day is when we come to worship God. The day of the Lord and the Lord's Day are two different things. The day of the Lord is a description of a future point of time. It is a description of a future point of time. And the day of the Lord, it begins at the time believers on earth are raptured into heaven. And from that moment, the clock starts ticking. Now, for your reference, because I don't have time this morning to get into that. But for your reference, you want to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, go back to the sermon archives in our, on our podcast. And if you go back just several weeks ago, as we were preaching through 1 Thessalonians on Wednesday nights, and I'm still in 2 Thessalonians, I talked about the day of the Lord in a, pass, in a message there from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I, and I gave a full description about that. And it describes here that the day of the Lord begins, the day of the Lord, the sequence of the day of the Lord starts as believers are being raptured and it incorporates several elements, okay? Believers are raptured. If you're saved, okay, if you're saved this morning, say amen if you're saved. If you're saved this morning, if Jesus was to blow the trumpet right now, we're going to get raptured. We're going to go up to meet the Lord in there. We're going to be gone. I mean, if I go up before you, you're in trouble, okay? That means you didn't get saved, okay? But I tell you even worse, if you will go up and I don't go up, I'm in trouble, amen? That would be a bad thing, okay? But all saved people will be raptured up. The Lord's going to snatch us out of this world. And from there, we'll start a period, a time period that is very apocalyptic and a very cataclysmic. 
cataclysmic. It's called the Great Tribulation Period, okay? Now, we haven't, we haven't got to the Great Tribulation. I don't want to get a hold of myself, but uh, we're going to help you understand Matthew 24 with this. And we're going to help you understand uh, Revelation 6 to 18. But the Tribulation Period is God's wrath and judgment on Israel and all the unbelievers who are left behind, okay? It is God's wrath and judgment upon all unbelievers who are left behind and all of Israel there, those, unbelie- those unbelievers during that time. And as you read through Revelation, it's going to be a time of economic failure. It's going to be a time of ecumenicalism, of all religions coming together. True born-again believers will, will, will be raptured out. People will get saved during that time, but it will be at a great price. People get saved during that tribulation period of time. Most, if not all of them, will be martyred for their faith. It's just going to be a very bloody time. There will be many wars, many cataclysmic events going on. Uh, you think about right now that earthquakes and volcanoes erupting and things like that are bad. It's going to happen. It's going to be a natural Currents all the time going on there in the world. The world will be upside down. The waters will be polluted. The, you talk about global, global warming. We haven't seen anything yet. The sun will be darkened, the Bible says. I mean, there'll be things going on. The, I believe the ozone layer will be, will be burned out. I mean, there's going to be a number of things during that time. It's going to be very, very bad. It's, it's going to affect the world. And, uh, and that's what he's talking about. The day of the Lord incorporates this great tribulation period. And then at the end of the seven years, at the end of seven years, the second coming of Christ. Now, the second coming of Christ is different from the rapture. The rapture, Jesus descends from heaven into the air. We believe that'll be the first heaven. He descends into the firmament. And there in the firmament, we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. If you would, the Lord is waiting for his bride to meet him. And he's going to take his bride home to heaven. That's a wonderful thing. But the second coming, second coming, the Bible says in Revelation 1-7, every eye will see him. When the rapture occurs, no one's going to see him, okay? It'll be in the twinkling of an eye. But with the second coming, Every eye will see him. And that means we will be coming with him. We are part of the armies of heaven coming with our Lord Jesus Christ as he does battle with nations that are against him. And we'll say more about that as we get through Isaiah. Nations that are against him. He slays them with the word of his mouth. We come with him. And at that point in time, as Jesus comes again, he establishes his 1,000-year reign on earth. Now look at verses 2 through 4. Verses 2 through 4 are talking about Jesus' reign on earth. He's talking about that time frame there of the day of the Lord, this millennium. He's talking about what will go on this millennium period. Now, this millennial period, you'll notice this, this 1,000-year reign of Christ. It's a wonderful time. It's a time where Jerusalem will be, the, will be the religious, the spiritual capital of the whole world. Okay, It'll be the spiritual capital of the whole world. Look what he says there. He calls it the mountain of the Lord. Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, okay? They're not gonna be, there's not going to be all these different places people are going to go to. The, Jerusalem will be the central place of worship. And the Bible describes it this way. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be in, in a, a place that's exalted, high above the earth, high above on, on the top of the mountains. And it says, and all nations shall flow into it. Now, we'll understand some things from Ezekiel when we read through this a little bit there. When you're talking to Micah, when he talks about these nations flowing into it, that means every nation that will be left that is we will call a saved nation they will all come to worship the lord it's gonna be a wonderful time when everyone will have a desire to worship the lord it'll be a wonderful time when people will come to assemble there and in verse three he talks about he says he's there's an invitation it says come ye and let us all go up to the mount of the lord people want to worship god people will come from all over the world to worship god they will want to come to that holy place of jerusalem the capital spiritual capital of this world here. And as we look at that, there'll be only one God that'll be worshipped. We're not going to have the multiplicity of different religions, and there won't be pluralism and all that. There'll only be one worship, and that'll be the worship of God. I mean, I want you to understand today, this is something that we don't understand today, because that's not happening today. I mean, on that day, God and God alone will be worshipped. God and God alone shall reign. God and God alone, His name will be lifted up, and every nation will exalt Him. It'll be a time of great worship. And notice, people come And in verse 3 he says, people will come with a teachable heart. They say, he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. I mean, for a pastor, this is music to my ears and this is music to my eyes because we work hard to get people to come to church. Amen. We work really hard to get people to come to church. But in that day, Jesus is the chief shepherd and Jesus will be on his throne there and everyone will come to worship God. I mean, it's going to be a wonderful day. How many enjoy worshiping God? Say amen. Amen. I mean, if you look forward to coming to church on that day, 
day when the millennium comes, man, everybody's going to want to worship God. And everyone's going to come to the house of God. And they're going to say, Lord, teach us your word. And Jesus will be the preacher teaching us. And he'll teach us his way. And God's people will be obedient. And the Bible says, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All I can tell you this, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. There'll be preaching, and there'll be teaching, and there'll be obedience, and there'll be just a loveliness towards the Lord, and a love towards God, and Jesus will be on the throne. It's going to be a wonderful thing. But it gets even better than that. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 talks about Jesus judging among the nations. Now, you might want to write in your notes Matthew chapter 25, because that's talking about the judgment of the nations. I don't have time to get into that. But there'll be two groups of nations. There'll be the goat nations and the sheep nations. The sheep nations are those nations that were friendly to Israel during the tribulation period. Those people will realize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And those sheep nations will put their faith, those people will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But the goat nations are those nations that are adversarial to Israel and adversarial to Jesus Christ. And we'll read about those from Ezekiel 38 and 39. By the way, the Bible prophesies about those nations. It'll be some of the, the Russian nations and the Stan nations. And it'll be, it'll be, it'll be Turkey. And it'll be, it'll be Iran. And it'll be Ethiopia. And those nations are mentioned there because, because of their, well, for whatever reason, they will rebel against God. And they want nothing to do with God and the things of God. And they will fight against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ here. And so we read this. The, Jesus says in verse 4, he will judge among the nations and he shall rebuke many people. So as we begin begin this, this, this uh, the, the millennial period as Jesus comes, there'll be the judgment of the nation. And as he does so, something very interesting. During our timeline, for everybody born in this room, we have lived through many wars. Some of you have been long, around here long enough, you remember World War II. Some of you were born right as World War II was either starting or ending. Many of you have gone through the Korean War. Many of you have been through the Vietnam crisis. Many of you have been through the, 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 uh, the, what happened there in the Gulf War and Iraq and all that, the Afghanistan War, and there's skirmishes all over the world. I mean, we have wars, and wars will continue. But the Bible says here, when the millennium comes, there'll be no more wars. You can have all the peace pacts you want in this generation. Only with Jesus on the throne, there'll be an end of wars. And he describes it here in verse 4. He says, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Can I tell you this this morning? That's going to be a sacred hour. That's going to be a holy time. Because Jesus is on the throne. And it's going to be wonderful. There'll be worship. And there'll be no more war. And there'll be no more fighting. And there'll be the love of God. And, then, and he talks about later on that, the, that little child, children will put their, hole, their hand in a hole where, 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 where venomous uh, snakes are. And they will not be bitten. And it talks about the little lamb will lie down with the lion and will not be eaten. I mean, it'll be a time of unprecedented peace in the world only during that time of the millennium. But we see something else that's very interesting. Jump to chapter 4. We see that there's no more wars, and we see there'll be great worship, and all the nations of the world will assemble there to meet the Lord. But I want you to see something very beautiful. Because the focus, listen, the focus is not going to be on a building, and the focus is not going to be on a mountain, and the focus is not on the fact that there's peace. The focus is on the fact that Jesus Christ, our God, reigns. The focus will be the fact we will come and behold our King. We will see Him. And notice in chapter 4, verse 2, it speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you there? Chapter 4, verse 2, did you notice? It says, and in that day, and he's talking about the day of the Lord. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Now the branch, when you see that there, here in Isaiah, and it's going to be mentioned again in Isaiah 11 or 11 or 12, and then you'll see over in Jeremiah chapter 24, and I think in Micah chapter, uh, chapter 3 or chapter 4, it mentions the branch. The branch is Jesus Christ. Now, the branch, he's called the branch because he is, a, a, he is the branch from David's throne, because Jesus is, is of the throne of David. And he speaks about Christ in, a, as, in his monarchy, and he speaks of him in his royalty, and he speaks of Christ as being the branch of David. Jeremiah 23.5 says he is the righteous branch. Jeremiah 23 5 says, He is the king who shall reign and prosper. Zechariah 3 8 said, He's God's servant, the branch. And Zechariah 6 12 says, He shall grow up out of this place and shall build the temple of the Lord. It's a sacred hour because as our eyes are on all these different things we'll be reading, we must not lose sight of the fact our eyes must be on Jesus Christ and our eyes must be on the Lord. And we must remind ourselves that Christ will be lifted up and Christ will be honored. May I say to you this morning, brother and sister in Christ, if there's ever a time God's 
people need to worship God and focus on the Lord. It is today. It is right now. We can get our eyes on so many other things and we can be distracted. And if we're not very careful, we'll let the calamities of this world and we'll let wars and rumors of wars and all of these things distract us. And we must have our eyes on the Lord. And so Isaiah, as he's writing this, he reminds us in chapter four, verse two, that this is a sacred hour. That day of the Lord is a sacred hour. He's telling them about things that will be. And he tells us that so that you and I can be encouraged because you know what? You and I who are saved, we're going to be part of that. Amen? We're going to get to share in that. We're going to be part of that glory time. We're going to be part of that worship. Listen, today, everything you do right now in church is to prepare you and me for the worship of the Lord. We're going to spend all of eternity worshiping God and serving our Lord and honoring Christ. And you want to be found faithful unto the Lord when that day comes. Number one, we see a sacred hour. But notice chapter two. Would you notice number two? Number two. Now, this is where we get the crux of our message. You've got to put your seatbelt on. We see a sacred hour, but I want you to notice number two, a stressful humbling. A very stressful humbling. Now, I imagine Isaiah is a prophet in chapter two. Go back with me to chapter two. Verses two, three, and four. He's just told the people he's writing to, which includes us, about the wonderfulness of the second coming of Christ in the 1,000 year reign of Jesus. And verse five, he gets us ready for what he's gonna tell us next. Would you notice that? And in verse five, he gives a strong exhortation. Because sometimes we can get so, we can get so caught up about telling you about the future, we might overlook about saying, what about now? Right? Well, that's great to know, but what about right now? What do I do with what I've learned? How do I apply it? What do I do? And Isaiah, being, being God's prophet, brings him right back to now. And he says in verse 5, it's a call to all the Jews. Now when he says the house of Jacob, he's talking about Judah, but he knows that they've got, they've got, they've got the house of Israel. And he's beckoning to Israel too, and he's calling to all the Jews. And he's saying in verse 5, well, house of Jacob, come ye. By the way, I'm thankful that God always makes an invitation to his people. Amen? He says, O come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now he's saying to them, listen, I just finished telling you in chapter 1 that you're a sinful nation. You're a seed of corruptors. You're an evil nation. You're evil people there. And he says, now I've told you about the future and what to look forward to. But he says, you know what? We're not, we're not right with God. Our fellowship is not where it needs to be. And we're, we've got some sin issues dealing with our lives here. And he says, come. Come ye, he says, tell unto all of God's people, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. You see, walking in the light of the Lord means let's obey God. When we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. Walking in the light means you agree with God. Walking in the light means you're obeying God. Walking in the light means you're reading his word and obeying his word. Walking in the light means you're faithful and coming to church and sitting on the preaching of God's word. We're to walk in the light. And so he's inviting all of God's people to walk in the light. Everyone can understand that. Everyone can grasp that. Everyone knows what it means to walk in the light of the Lord. And then notice, beginning in verse 5, he drops a bomb. Because now in chapter 5, in chapter 2, in verse, starting with verse 6, if you would, please, from verse 6 until the end of chapter 3, he's, he's addressing the sins of Judah. He's telling them to walk in the light of the Lord. And we're going to find that frequently mentioned throughout the book of Isaiah. You see, God's people had turned away from God. And where they turned away from God the area where they turn away from God the most, which is what Isaiah writes about, is their idol worship. And I talked about this last week, that the, the people of God, they, they, obeyed, they obeyed God and what he gave in Exodus and Leviticus about the ceremonies and the feasts. And they celebrated every day in the temple of God. They celebrated the bird offerings. And they brought sin offerings for their sins. And they celebrated the peace offerings. And they had the Passover. And they had the Day of Atonement. They did all those things. I mean, they kept it very well. And everybody came. And if they did not live in Jerusalem, they came as pilgrims from other areas. They made their trek there on those special days, those three or four times of the year where they were supposed to come and worship God. But they would do that. They would obey that and do just their thing. But the moment they left the temple and the moment after they gave their sacrifices, they, they went back home and they're on top of their roofs or somewhere in the corner of their house or somewhere where they, if they owned a, if they owned a, a lot of farmland, they would have a grove of trees out there. And they had established these idols that were carved out of wood and idols 
that were carved out of stone, idols that they had replicated from watching what the pagan nations around them had done. They were worshiping the gods like Molech, and they were worshiping gods of, of days gone by. They were worshiping gods, gods, if you would, that had eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear, and mouths that could not speak, and hands that could not touch. And believe it or not, these people were basically on one end saying, we, we, we do believe in the worship of God, but they went back home, and they were worshiping idols. They were worshiping other things and giving their affection to those things. They were holding back their offerings. They were despising using the Sabbath day for the glory of God. And so God's heart had been grieved. And this had been going on for many, many years. This was not something that was new. It had been going on for many, many years. And it started... And it proliferated with one, it started with Solomon, and then it went to his son Rehoboam, and then from there it proliferated with other kings. And then there was a king by the name of Ahab. Ahab married a, a, a woman by the name of Jezebel, and she was a pagan woman, and she was a Zidonian, and she brought in Baal worship, and Baal worship was a fertility cult that, that came into Israel. And so all of these kinds of worship came into the nation of Judah and permeated them, and they never did get that out of there. And so there would always rise up in new generations a, a, a semblance of people that worshiped these idols. Well, when Isaiah is writing this, the people of God were two-timing God. They were two-timing God by doing this. They would, so they would show in the ceremonies, like you and I, they would come to church and they would worship God with their heart, but then they would go home and they'd worship other gods. Let me tell you this morning, our problem today is not that we're worshiping uh, idols carved out of stone and idols carved out of wood. It might be today we're worshiping the idol of entertainment. And it might be today that we're worshiping the idol of education. And it might be today that we're worshiping the idol of materialism. And it might be today we're worshiping the idol of our career and the idol of our money. And it might be today we're worshiping the idol of self that we think that we are as good as God and we think that we belong on the same platform for God. And why do we need God? I got to where I'm at. I remind you this morning, it is God which gives you the power to acquire wealth. You got it because God was good to you. And so Isaiah starts to write as he's inspired by God from chapter 2, verse 6, the end of chapter 3, about this sinful nation. But as you read this, would you, would you follow me this morning? He talks about the idols in verses 6 through 10. He says, the land is full of silver and gold. The land also is full of idols. So is our nation. And he says, even, verse 9, the mean man, he's talking about, he's talking about the, 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 the man who's, who's um, he's talking about someone who's even the hardest man, a hardened man. He says, the mean man bows down, and the great man humbles himself. No, he's saying, all walks of humanity in, in, among the Jews are worshiping these idols. Now, a tough question for you and I to ask. What are you worshiping besides God? What do you give attention to where you give more attention to that than you do to God? That's why we have the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before thee. That's why we have the great commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind. But it's not that that Isaiah spends his time on. Would you notice in chapter 2, verse 11, starting there, he talks about this root problem I mentioned. I need to move quickly. He says, The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Go down a little bit further. And notice verse 17. And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down. And the haughtiness of man shall be made low. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Brother and sister Christ, listen to me this morning. The root problem, the root problem of all of our sins is the sin of pride. The root problem of all of our sins is the sin of pride. It's pride. And he's going to unfold for us very quickly this morning this matter of pride. And notice he says here in verse 12 about the day of the Lord. That on that day of the Lord, and he's talking about the tribulation period now. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and everyone that is lifted up. And he shall be brought low. And you've got to understand his terminology here because he talks about the cedars of Lebanon. And 
Back in that time in the country, uh, there in Syria, the cedars of Lebanon were tall, tall trees, and they pointed upwards, and, and they were very tall. And he talked about these high mountains and hills, and he talked about high towers and fenced cities. He said, you know what? Men's pride is not just reflected in their looks. Men's pride is reflected in what they, in what they erect and what they put up and the imaginations of man. And so he's talking about this root problem of pride. He's saying, you know, on the day of the Lord, God's going to deal with the pride problem universally with everyone during that great tribulation period. Now, for a moment this morning, I want you to understand with me God's heart concerning the sin of pride. What you notice as we look at this stressful humbling, notice, first of all, the heart of pride. Now, let's be honest this morning. Every one of us are proud. Amen? All of us are proud. All of us have pride, okay? Charles Spurgeon said this, the demon of pride was born with us, and it will not die one hour before us. We were born with it, we're gonna die with it. We are all very proud people. Now you say, what is pride? Pride is a high opinion of oneself. Pride is priding myself on my accomplishments and thinking I'm the one that did it. Pride is being arrogant in our speech and in our actions. Pride is when uh, we are boastful and promoting ourselves. Pride is when we compare ourselves with other people for the purposes of exalting ourselves. Pride is having a conceited attitude towards other people. God refers to pride here in verse 11 and verse 17 as having lofty looks and a haughty spirit. Pride is why we will not admit to our sin or will not admit that we're wrong. Pride is, hey, listen today. Pride is why most marital conflicts that don't get resolved never get resolved. Pride is the reason why most, most parent-child conflicts never get resolved. One or the other is not willing to humble themselves. Pride is the reason why maybe you're not, you don't want to get saved. You're too proud to admit that you need Jesus Christ as Savior and to humble yourself. I told somebody this the other day, if you would just humble your heart and call upon the Lord, he can save you today from your sins. Pride is the reason why we don't have revival. Pride is the reason why when the invitation is given, most of God's people are shy and reserved about coming forward or even kneeling down in their seat to acknowledge that they need right with God. Why, why are we like that? Because we're proud. We're afraid of what people will say. We're afraid of what people will think. We are more concerned of what people think and people say than we think about what God says and what God thinks. When we're proud, we walk out angry if we don't hear what we want to hear. When we're proud, we won't listen to our husband or we won't listen to our wife. When we're proud, we won't listen to our children. When we're proud, we come to the pastor and we ask for counsel, but in reality, most people don't come to the pastor for counsel. They want consent on the plans that they've already made. They just want to know, I'm going to run this by you. They've already made up their mind. They just want to see if I agree with it. And if I don't agree with it, they get angry, storm out the office thinking, well, there's something wrong with you because you didn't agree with me. There's nothing wrong with what I did. I'm just going to tell you the word of God. If you don't agree with the word of God, your problem's not with me, your problem's with God, amen? I'm just saying today, that's, that's the problem with pride. Hey, pride is why preachers have feuds, and preachers, they, they, they have arguments with their churches, and pride is why people get upset with the church instead of sticking with it and persevering. They get upset, and they leave the church and walk out because they were offended. Can I tell you something? If we would just humble ourselves and realize this, Jesus Christ was reviled, and reviled not again. Jesus Christ was scorned, but he, he threatened not. I remind you today, if you think you're offended, nobody was ever more offended in life than Jesus Christ was. And we have to recognize today that there needs to be a humbling of our hearts every now and then because what goes on. This is what the Bible says here. In Psalms 10, verse 4, proud people do not seek after God. They will not naturally seek after God. That's what Psalms 10, 4 says. Psalms 10, 2 says, proud people tend to be harsh and oppressive of others. If you're a very harsh person, if you're one that is, tends to be very mean and to be very uh, abrupt with people all the time, there's a problem of pride right there. Listen to what the Bible says here. In in Proverbs 13, 10, only by pride cometh contention. If you are argumentative, if you're divisive, you're contentious with people, only by pride cometh contention. Proverbs 21, 24, pride is the root behind the sins of anger and wrath. Proverbs 28, 25, proud people are divisive and argumentative. In Daniel 5, 20, we have the story there about the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. Pride leads to hardness of heart. That was the definition that God gave to King Belshazzar. In Obadiah 1, 3, Pride deceives our hearts. There's so many things I could say, but brother and sister in Christ, the heart of pride is that is this we think we're better than what we really are. There's the heart of pride. But what you notice this morning, number two, there's the hatred of pride. Now, what does God think about pride? What does God think about pride? In Isaiah 2 and 3, chapter 2 and 3, would you notice some things? In verse chapter 2, verse 11, God calls out the pride of the men. 
He starts with the men. Hey, man, buck stops with us. Amen? Men, you have to take responsibility for your actions. Whether you are right or wrong, if you're a leader, take responsibility for your actions. Stop blaming people. If you're a real man, stop blaming people except responsibility for your actions. Amen? The men of this church who are leaders in this church understand this when they sit down with me. As leadership team, we accept responsibility. Whether we did it or we, did it or we didn't do it, we accept responsibility what goes on. Men, take responsibility in your marriage. Regardless of what happens, you're the leader of the home. Take responsibility. Don't blame your wife. Don't blame the dog. Don't blame your son. Don't blame your daughter. Take responsibility for that, okay? So he calls out the men. Notice in verses 13 to 16. In chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, he calls out the accomplishments and the enterprises of men. In verse chapter 3, he gets, it goes a little bit further. Notice chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. He calls out the leaders of Israel. Man, he calls out everybody. He says the mighty man and the man of war and the judge and the prophet. He's calling out himself there, right? And the prudent and the ancient. He says the captain of 50, the honorable man and the counselor, the, the cunning artifice and eloquent order. He said, listen, he, he, he was sparing nobody. He was calling all the leaders there. In fact, he says, you know it's so bad? Your, 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 your pride is so bad. I'm going to make children and little babies leaders over the leaders. That's almost like saying my, my little granddaughter Evie's going to lead me. That's how bad it was. I mean, that's, God was not being humorous. He's saying, your pride is so bad. He said in verse 4, chapter 3, I will give children to be their princes and babies shall rule over them. Then we get down to chapter 3. Did you notice verse 16 to 26? I mean, you have to understand God, God is a God who loves us, but God, God's going to cover all his bases. He doesn't show favoritism, Okay. God does not show favoritism. In chapter 3, and I wish I had time to preach on this, verses 16, 26, he drops the bomb on the ladies. He talks about the pride of the ladies and how they displayed their pride through the ostentatiousness by how they dress and, and their soundings and all that. And you know, God, God talks about how he's going to humble them. He says, uh, he talks about the humbling in verses 17 and 18. He says in verse 17, therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. That's pretty blunt, but I'm gonna tell you what he's saying there. For a woman, the glory of a woman's her hair. The Bible tells us that. The beauty of a woman is found in her hair. The Bible encourages us that women should have hair longer than men. But God said in that day, because of those women and he said during that tribulation period he says those women listen to me now those women those women are so proud they're sticking their necks out and they're wearing this jewelry you could hear the jewelry clanking by like symbols as they walked around they had jewelry on their ankles and jewelry on their necks and jewelry on their wrists they're walking by doing their thing and it's clinking and tingling here and tingling there and they're putting strutting their stuff and they're wearing all these expensive garments because they're like a they're like a they're like a fashion plate they want everybody to see them and you know what god said here in verse 17 he says you know, let me tell you what i'm gonna do about your pride ladies he said your hair is gonna fall out that's what he means there. Your hair is going to fall out. He says, and he says, you know what? You're really immodest. I'm going to expose your immodesty there. I mean, that's what he's saying there. I'm going to expose your immodesty, and your hair is going to fall out. No, no, about you. I don't want any more of my hair to fall out. Amen? I want to keep what I got. Amen? You know what he's saying there? God hates pride. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, it mentions six things God hates. Seven are an abomination. Now, the word abomination is much stronger than hatred. It's something detestable and disgusting and repugnant. And the very first thing he says of the, of the things God hates, a proud look. Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand joined in hand, he shall not be unpunished. Proverbs 21, 4. A high look and a proud heart and the plying of the wicked is sin. Can I tell you this morning? Please don't get angry with me. I'm not mad at you. I'm just saying what God's word says. God hates pride. Pride is sin. In our pride, we won't listen to God. We won't hear his word. In our pride, we refuse to repent of our sin and be contrite in our heart. In our pride, we won't obey God and do what we're supposed to do. Pride is the Christian stumbling block. Pride is the root of all sins. Pride is the sinner's number one obstacle for not getting saved. God hates pride. Hey, there's the heart of pride. We know what pride is now. And we know God hates pride. But would you notice number three? Would you notice the humbling of pride? And we just read that in Isaiah 2, verse 11. and Isaiah 2, verse 17, he says, God shall bring it down. He says, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled. James chapter 4, verse 6, if you look at your notes, it's in your notes. He says, 
but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Now, what does it mean, Pastor Fong, that God will humble us? There's a Bible word that I want you to write down. And you can look it up in Hebrews chapter 12. That Bible word is the word chasten or chastening. Now, chastening could be also translated discipline. Correction. You read through the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs admonishes us to use discipline or chastening in raising children. You know, cause and consequences. And God uses chastening. You might say he spanks us. God uses chastening to humble us. You cannot predict when chasing will come. You never see it coming. You never will know when it happens. When God literally pulls the rug out from under your feet and everything can look like it's doing really good and you can have the sunshine in your life and it looks like God's shining his face on you and then boom, a dark cloud's over your life. You're wondering, where did that come from? It's chastening. God uses chastening to humble us. God uses chastening to humble us. And sometimes as we look here, he says here that the lofty looks of man shall be humbled. Sometimes God uses different things to humble us. And he, and he uses this chasing method to get our attention, to cause us to fear. Because as you read chapter 2, he says when the judgment of God comes upon those who are worshiping idols and are lofty looks, he says, listen, it's going to be so bad, you're going to look for a cliff. You're going to look for a cave to hide in. You're going to hide yourself in some, some place there for fear of the Lord. You're going to be so scared. God uses chasing to put the fear of God into our hearts. And God uses chasing to wake us up. And God uses chasing to draw us closer to the Lord. And God uses chasing to bring tears to our eyes. And God uses chasing to touch our heart and to take that hardness and callousness out of our heart to make us tender and receptive and realizing that God's trying to get our attention. Listen, every parent in this room understands this. If you love your children, if you don't want your child to grow up to be a criminal, you're going to discipline them and chasten them so they don't make bad mistakes. If your child lies, you don't say to your little child, oh, Billy, that's so bad, don't do it again. You need to discipline your child because if they turn out to lie now, they're going to be worse liars when they become adults and they're going to wind up in jail one day. Amen. And they're going to do shame to you. And they're going to do shame to your family name. And I'm just saying today, God uses chasing as his way to, do, to deal with our, the sin of pride. But you say, why does God chase us? Because the Bible says this, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. You love your children, you chasten your children. You discipline your children. God in love disciplines us. And let me say some things about God, how God humbles us. First, let me say this. Chastening is always painful. And chastening is always stressful. It's extremely stressful. It's a stressful humbling. So how does God humble us? Well, look at some things we just read. The proud shall be bowed down. The proud shall be made low. The Lord takes away. He replaces the proud in positions of leadership with those he can trust. He will allow physical infirmities. Look at chapter 3, verse 17 again. Physical infirmity. He said to those ladies, he says that day, the the ladies, their, their hair will fall out and their immodesty will be exposed. Uh, verse 17, he will, he will cause us to be shamed. He'll, he'll allow embarrassment and shame into our life. Uh, he'll take away the things we're flaunting. That's verses 18 to 24. He will touch our lives where we feel it the most. Notice chapter 3. He talks about these women here. They were so, they're so proud in that future day. He says, all of their husbands shall fall by the sword and thy mighty men in the war. She's saying this. You know what? Your husbands will go to war and your, all of your husbands will die in that war. He said there will be so many men that will lose their lives. And we read about that in Ezekiel there. And we read about that in Revelation. So many men will lose their lives. There will be an overpopulation of women over the men. And in that day... If a woman did not have a husband, there was a loss of dignity. There was a sense of shame because she really didn't have, she really didn't have a sense or presence in, in society. And so we go to chapter 4, verse 1. Notice this. And it says, in that day, after they've lost their husbands, and they're lamenting, and they're mourning, and they're sorrowful, and they're desolate. He says in chapter 4, verse, verse 1, in that day, seven men shall take hold of one man, saying, we will eat our own bread, and we will eat our own apparel. In other words, they're saying, hey, listen, we don't want you to marry us. 
and we don't want you, we don't need you to sustain us economically, but would you let us bear your name? Would you let us have some sense of dignity in our, in our nation? Because we need a, we need a name. Our husband is dead and, and we, we need a name. And, and he says here, and this is not being facetious. He's saying seven women will take hold of one man and saying, would you let us bear your name for a sense of dignity and a sense of our, our place in society? I mean, that's how bad the humbling will be at that time. And if we get this, it goes back to what God says in James 4, 6. God resisted the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God uses humbling to deal with the sin of pride. One of my favorite preachers I like reading is an old preacher from the 1800s. His name was Alexander White. Those of you Bible students, if you want to get a good, good set of books on uh, biographies of Bible, Bible characters, you want to get the characters that, that Alexander White wrote about, he did, does a great job on almost every character of the Bible. Alexander White, if you read his, read his books and his sermons, he was a very eloquent preacher. And during his day, there was a young man that came up that was about 24, 25, who was very polished and very eloquent, extremely articulate, and started getting a name in the same area of Edinburgh where Alexander White preached. And, and so he was finding his way into every pulpit. And this young preacher who was very arrogant, he called up, he called up Pastor White. He says, Pastor White, he says, I'm going to be in your area. Do you mind if I come and preach in your pulpit, which, which is wrong to do, that's unethical to do. But Pastor White, being a wise and older man, sees Man, sure, I'd like to have you come to my pulpit. And this man was brash and he was arrogant. He flaunted his stuff. He walked like he had like a peacock that opened up all of its tail there, you know. I mean, he just was flaunting his stuff there. And he sat in the front row and that, that, that senior wise preacher came to the pulpit and he introduced this young man. He was very gracious. He introduced him. He said, we're going to have this young preacher come up and I want you to give your, your ears to, to, to the man, but give your heart to God. And that preacher walked up, the, he walked up to, the, to the front there of the pulpit. He was holding his Bible in his hand and he was really, really proud. And uh, he got to the pulpit and he had to smile on his face, and then all of a sudden, this happens to every preacher, but in this preacher's case, it happened right there in the pulpit, he, his mind went blank. And he said, does that happen? Yeah, I've had that happen before, and it's not a good thing. And uh, I've had times when, when I was supposed to preach a message, and, and, and I had the wrong message. I always preached a, a marriage sermon instead of the right sermon. You know what I'm saying there? That could be very embarrassing. This preacher got to the pulpit, he got to the podium, and he's about to, he, he just went blank. He couldn't remember his passage. He couldn't remember what he was supposed to say. And it was almost like he was talking in tongues. He tried to talk, and he, he, was, he was just, the words weren't coming. It was mumbo-jumbo. And he started to realize he was making a fool out of himself. And it, and it was just a few minutes, but it seemed like several hours, and he's making a fool out of himself. And, and the people, he could tell the people were getting a little uncomfortable. Like, what's wrong with this young guy? He's like, did he lose his mind? What's going on with him? And finally, the young man, he just said, he kind of looked around. He turned around, looked at Pastor White. And Pastor White, with a very compassionate look, knew the man was having trouble. The young man dropped his head and, walked down those flight of stairs that led to the podium. He went back and sat down in his seat. The pastor knew what God was doing. The pastor came up and got to the pulpit and he says, let's pray for the young man right now that God will give him special grace during this time. And then as he led the congregation prayer, the pastor opened the Bible and started preaching a message to the congregation. They had a good service. The service ended very gloriously. The young man sat there at the front, kind of where Brother Justin's at right now. His head was down the entire time. Tears were staining the carpet and the floor. When it was all done and three-fourths of the church was already out of the room, Pastor White came down, went up to the young man and put his hand around the young man. The man looked up at Pastor White with a very humble look and tears coming down his face. He said, Pastor White, what happened to me? What happened? I had my sermon ready. I was ready to read my text. When I got behind your podium... My mind went blank. I couldn't think. I couldn't get the words out. That wise old preacher, listen to this. The wise old preacher told that young man this. He said, laddie, that's what they said, that's what they called young men in those days. They called him laddie. We'd say boy, you know, something like that, you know. He said, laddie, if you'd gone up the way you came down, you would have come down the way you went up. He's saying, sir, you went up with haughty looks, a haughtiness and a lofty look. God humbled you, and you came down embarrassed and shamed because you would not give God the glory. And I tell you this morning, there's a stressful humbling for pride. As we close, I want you to see one last thing we're done. I want you to see the best part of this now. We see, as we close, a sacred hour, a stressful humbling, but very quickly, I want you to notice a special help. 
Now, you read chapters two and three, get chapter four, you feel really beat up on, right? You feel like, man, God's really beating up on my pride right now, you know? And you feel like a truck ran over you and parked itself on top. You feel like, man, God, God, God didn't spare any mercy. He's talking all about pride here. He didn't hit me right on my, hit me in my heart there. But then the Lord turns our attention back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad about that today? You go to chapter 4, verse 2, and we see a revelation. This revelation is about the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you see what happens when, if we just stay focused on our sin, it's very discouraging. But the Lord gets our attention back on Jesus, and he gets our attention back on Jesus, and we get our attention on Jesus. He gets our eyes on that future day, the, the branch of the Lord. Notice he says, you'll be beautiful and be glorious. Hey, don't, don't, don't get your eye, keep your eyes on your sin, and don't keep your eyes on your faults and your problems. There are other people's faults and problems. Get your eyes on Jesus Christ, amen? Get your eyes on the Lord. And he says, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and shall be glorious, and he gives this revelation. But notice something else. As he says that, he says, everyone there shall be called holy, and everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. And then he says he talks about a restoration. What about the pride? What about the idolatry? Well, God did all that because these people now are contrite in the future. They will all be contrite and repentant of their sins. And he says, well, what about our sins? And he not only talks about this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he talks about the restoration of their fellowship. And in verse 4 he says, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall purge the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. And what he's saying there, even though we have sinned and even though we have pride, thank God it can come under the blood of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have your sins washed away. People always ask the question, what about after I get saved? What about my sin? I'm fearful. Will I lose my salvation? No, you will not lose your salvation. But what about my sin? Listen, the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed 2,000 years ago on the cross is sufficient for all of our sins. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. Not some sin, not past sin, all sin, present sins and future sins. Listen, we can come and confess our sins to him because he's faithful and he's just. That means God is fair. God looks at you and I and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he's telling these proud Jews, why don't you come and come under the blood and get your sins washed away. And I'm saying this morning to maybe some Christians who've been far away from God and you're proud and you're stout and your pride, you have refused to repent and come to God. Come to him today in his mercy. He extends the mercies of forgiveness and the mercies of cleansing and the mercies of his blood. And you can come today and have forgiveness and washing and maybe you've held out on God and refused to get saved. I say to you this morning, don't hold out any longer. Come to God right now and find refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ and come to him for the cleansing of your sin. You can be born again into the family of God. You can be saved today. Know for sure that heaven is your home. Oh, man, he gives us a revelation. He gives us a restoration. But as we close, notice the last two verses of chapter 4. He gives us a special refuge. You see, the Lord is our help. There's a special name given in the Bible about God. It's called Eliezer. Eliezer means God is my helper or God who is my helper. El, which is God, and Azer, which means Ezer or Azer, which means help. God is my help. God is my helper. Can I tell you this morning? God knows we're going to have struggles. And God knows we're going to have difficulties. But God is there to help us. He's there to take us by the arm to boost us up, to pick us up off the ground, to, to turn our, our ashes into beauty, and he's going to turn our mourning into laughter. He's there to help you and I up to, so that we can be victorious and live for him. And notice here in chapter, chapter 4 as we close, he talks about the Lord creating upon every home and upon all the assemblies of God's people a cloud and smoke by day, and he says a flaming fire by night, and it shall be a defense for them. And he calls it in verse 6 a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge. Now, as he spoke about this, these Jews were discouraged, and he's trying to encourage them right now. He's saying, listen, I want to draw back in your memory something God did very special back in your days gone by with your forefathers. He said, you remember that cloud by day? and the pillar of fire by night, the Jews could depend on every day that God was going to lead them by this cloud by day, and he would lead them by night. And this cloud by day and this pillar of fire would settle upon them and would keep the enemy from attacking them. And God would use his presence to guide them and lead them. And sometimes God's people got so used to the cloud and the fire, they forgot God's presence is there. Kind of like us, sometimes we can get so used to God, we forget that his presence is there. He is with us wherever we go. Last night we were visiting with some, some, very, some uh, folks that are just coming to 
to our church and we're making some new friendships. And one of them said, you know, last Sunday I came to church and I'm so thankful. We almost got hit by a car, but God protected us. And I thought about that and I thought, well, thank God he gave his cloud by day and his pillar of fire by night to protect us. How many have ever been on a freeway or driving situation and God put his presence and protection around you, amen? He averted a bad accident from happening there. And maybe you were in an accident, but he averted you from having a worse accident. That's the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. I could testify on our crazy freeway system in the Bay Area. How many understand it's a crazy freeway system, amen? I'm talking about 580 and, one, and, and, and 880, and I'm talking about 101, and I'm talking about the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge. I'm talking about 80, and I'm talking about 237 and 238, and all these different freeways and 680 places. I mean, these are crazy places to drive. I'm thankful for all these years for the safety and hand of God, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And he's saying, listen, you've been without God's presence, but I'm going to give you my presence. I'm going to give you that cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night. And he says, you know what? In the heat of the day, it'll give you a shelter. And in the cold of night, it'll give you a shelter. Can I give you some good news as I close this morning? We're going to have trials and we're going to have difficulties and we're going to feel like we got thrown into a burning fiery furnace and the heat's going to turn on and we're going to feel the heat of that, of that trial. But I want to tell you, once you feel the heat of that trial, Jesus is a refuge in time of trouble. You can go to him and find a covering and you can go to him to find your help and you can hide in the promises of God and you can hide in the love of Jesus Christ knowing that he's your refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble, the Bible says. He's a refuge. He's a refuge. He's a hiding place. God does not promise to take away the heat, but he promises to give us a place to hide. He does not promise that the storms and rain that come in our life will go away, but he promises that Jesus Christ is a shelter in the time of storm. Isn't that good? Amen? I was reading a sermon by a man by the name of Robert Walker. And he made mention about what is believed to be maybe one of the safest and not the safest place on earth. You know where the safest place on earth is? It's a place called Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado. And there, back during the Cold War, they, they, they dug into the mountain there, half mile deep, a defense center called NORAD. And this command center is able to withstand any bomb blast, chemical, or biological weapon blast. They say that anybody who goes in there for shelter can be sustained for up to two years. That's amazing. They can be sustained for up to two years. That's called the safest place on earth. But I want to tell you this morning, the safest place in life is in Jesus Christ. He'll protect you from the bombs of Satan, the biological warfare of the enemy. The safest place you can be this morning is in the place of the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's let go of our pride. Humble yourself or God's going to humble you. And find our refuge and strength right now in Jesus Christ, who's a shelter in the time of storm. If you're not saved this morning, I invite you to trust Jesus as your Savior. I invite you today to be born again to God's family, to humble yourself before God, says, I will take Jesus this morning to be my Savior.